Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. So, um, this lovely lady uh, behind me, her name is Florence Chadwick. Um, she was an American long-distance swimmer in the mid-20th uh, century. Um, in August of 1950, she broke the world record for swimming across the English Channel. Uh, she did it in 13 hours and 20 minutes. I mean, that's like a very impressive feat. So the English Channel in between England and France. Um, two years later, though, um, in 1952, Florence stepped into the frigid waters of the Pacific Ocean. And she attempted to swim the 26 miles between... Catalina Island and the Californian coast. She was flanked by small boats that watched out for sharks and were prepared to help her if she got hurt or got too tired. And after about 15 hours, a dense fog kind of set in, right? So she couldn't really see what was in front of or behind her. She told her mother um, about this time that, um, and she was, her mom was in one of the boats, that, that she didn't think she could make it. Um, but her mother encouraged her to keep going. So she swam for about a whole other hour. So we're on hour 16. Um, but eventually then she, she gave in to her both physical and emotional exhaustion, right? I mean, just imagine where she was at. Um, but the thing is, after all this was over, after she got taken up into the boat and they came into shore, she found out that she was only a half a mile away. What are you doing? It's muted on the laptop. What do you mean? The... Uh, Josh said it's muted. That's that laptop. Sorry. So she found out that, that she quit a half mile from the shoreline. All right. She was a half mile away from her goal. She swam 16 hours and was that close. Um, and she said the next day at the press conference, um, I'm not making excuses, but I really do think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Right. Keeping the end in mind can actually change everything about an experience, right? If the end is in mind, it can change the experience that we're having. And so I encourage you, if you have your Bible, or if you, if you look at the Bible on your phone, to turn to Mark chapter 13. Because in this passage, Jesus is going to invite his disciples, he's going to invite um, the original readers of the Gospel of Mark, and he's going to invite me and you um, to, to live with the end in mind, to let the end shape how we uh, process and interpret and articulate our experience here in the present, all right? But all of this, this whole conversation that Jesus is going to have, and really it's a, it's a monologue that Jesus is going to go on, um, all takes place inside the, the context of a conversation about the temple in Jerusalem, and specifically its destruction, which would have been um, one of the most... Um, like, that would be like a 9-11 Pearl Harbor all wrapped up into one for the Jewish people, all right? Um, so, um, with that in mind, uh, let's pick up in chapter 13, uh, and we're going to be in verse 1, all right? As Jesus was leaving the temple, all right, so he'd been having a lot of conversations in and out of the temple, uh, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones! What magnificent buildings. Now, if you've been paying attention, uh, I know it's been a while, so let me jog your memory some. But if you've been paying attention to this series, you know that that is an absolutely ridiculous statement, okay? Um, 
In chapters 11 and 12 in the Gospel of Mark, the chapters that precede chapter 13, I know, maths, you're supposed to laugh, it was a joke, ha ha ha, <laughs> eh, whatever. The, um, Jesus, in chapters 11 and 12, Jesus has entered uh, into Jerusalem, he quote-unquote cleansed the temple, he called it a den of robbers, um, he cursed a fig tree, which he then, like, which killed the fig tree, and then he was like, by the way, the temple's like that dead fig tree. And then um, he has, since then, has been like picking fights with all of the temple higher-ups for the past couple days. So he like shows up into Jerusalem, bashes on the temple, and then fights with all the people in charge of the temple. And they are leaving the temple for the last time. Now the disciples don't know it's the last time. But they're leaving the temple for the last time. And one of them says, look, teacher, what magnificent building. What, what humongous stones. Now, in their defense, um, the, the temple in Jerusalem was actually one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it was 34 acres wide. It was 15 stories high. 15 stories seems like nothing to me or you. This is, I mean, 44 acres wide. I mean, 34 acres wide and 15 stories high at different parts. Like, this is the largest building, not just that they had seen, but probably anyone they had ever talked with had seen. All right? This is the most massive building in the world. I mean, it was plated with gold. Like, most of it was played with gold, particularly this dome. Like, there's quotes all throughout, like, history about how, like, magnificent this building is. And, like, it was made out of, if it wasn't played in gold, it was made out of this, like, brilliantly white limestone that just, like, kind of shimmered in, in the Jerusalem sun. Um, and so Jesus, you know, could have gotten mad at, at these guys for missing the point. I mean, obviously, these guys have, like, you know, he's trashed on the temple, and they've missed the point. But, but he doesn't, right? Um, he, he could have gotten mad and moved on, but, like, he knows that he's about to die. Like, he knows that his time's up. And so he, um, and he's going to be crucified in a couple of days. And so what he does, Jesus' responds is he, he invites his disciples into a conversation. He's like, hey, let me let, me let you in on a, on a little secret. All right, so picking up in verse 2, do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. All right, what Jesus is doing Let's talk first about Jesus, what Jesus is doing, and then we'll talk a little bit about what that would have meant to the disciples. What Jesus is doing is in 30 AD, or around 30 AD, he's predicting the destruction of the temple that will happen in 70 AD. All right, so I mean, it's impressive, like he's predicting something 40 years out, right? The disciples, like, you know, they know Jesus is powerful, but they probably haven't seen Jesus do this yet, so they're probably really confused. But he's predicting the, the destruction of the temple that we know, like we have 20, uh, hindsight 2020 vision, we know happens in 70 AD during the Roman war against the Jewish people. Um, at the end of this war, there was a general named General Titus, and he would come in and he would take Jerusalem over and he would sacrifice to pagan gods on the Jerusalem temple's altar. And then he would literally do what Jesus said and tear that temple down stone by stone. I mean, like, there, if you look up on, you can do it if you're on your phone, you can look up, like, Jerusalem temple, um, like, uh, ruins. And, like, literally, there is, like, not two stones stacked up on one another. I mean, it is crazy what this guy did. And so it's 40 years off, and, and so, you know, Jesus sees this coming, so, you know, he's like, well, you know, this is going to happen. Like, let me let you on the secret. But for the disciples, it's not just like, oh, my goodness, this hasn't happened yet. He's predicting the future. It's the temple can't be destroyed. Like, this was literally the defining trait of their existence as good Jews, right? All of the 12 disciples were, Jew, were, were 12 Jewish men, 
All right, they were good Jews. They would, they would come to the temple at least seven times a year for the temple feast. Like this was the center of their world. It was the center of their way of life. For the temple to be destroyed would be, uh, is the ending of the world as they know it. Okay? I mean, I, I just like trying to put yourself in their shoes. 9-11 and Pearl Harbor all wrapped up into one. Okay? This would change everything. And so... I'm picking up in verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of, Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. By the way, this is like just for free, but usually you see Peter, Andrew, James, and Peter, um, James, and John. Like those are the inner three, but, but Andrew's a part of this, which I think is interesting. And they ask him privately, tell us when uh, will these things happen, right? Like they're understandably interested. <laughs> like what in the world, Jesus? Like what are you talking about? When is it going to happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to all be fulfilled? In other words, like what's... When is this going to happen, and what are the kind of things that will happen around it that will kind of trigger our memory to let us know that this is going to happen? All right? So Jesus is going to respond to their two questions. And he's going to do so with, with uh, as I said earlier, an absolute just kind of monologue. Right? If you've seen a play or you've been a part of a play, you know, a monologue or like a soliloquy, you can imagine it either way. But Jesus is about to go off. All right? It is, um, it is, 30, uh, it is 33 verses of just Jesus talking. And he's going to be talking in a really weird way, all right? So we have to go ahead and get this out of the way. But Jesus is going to be talking um, in apocalyptic terms. Now, um, so let me just kind of read to you this quick quote from a scholar about what apocalyptic literature is. I know that maybe sounds boring to you, but this really matters. It's going to help us understand because there's some really important meaning in what Jesus is going to say. But we have to understand this first. So. Apocalyptic literature was a particular kind of literature current in Jesus' day. In other words, the disciples would have been able to interpret what Jesus was saying, right? This was a common way of, of communicating ideas and thoughts, all right? So, um, in Jesus' day, that sought to describe a great cosmic struggle between good and evil in symbolic ways, all right? Often, apocalyptic literature took a current crisis. So, the current crisis that's happening that Jesus is talking about is going to be what? Someone say it. What is it going to be about? Someone say it louder. The destruction of the temple. All right, so the destruction of the temple, so the current crisis, and Jesus is going to project the destruction of the temple onto the screen of eternity as though the current crisis was a model or a template for the eventual end of time. All right, that's what apocalyptic literature is about, okay? So, this is precisely what Jesus is going to do. This is precisely how he's going to respond to his disciples. He's going to take the destruction of the temple, and he's going to use it as a framework through which they should interpret their lives in light of the end time. All right, he's going to take the destruction of the temple, and he's going to use it as a framework or a template um, through which they should interpret their lives, by the way, not just their lives, but mine and yours as well, in light of the end times. All right. So yes, there is going to be some weird... And dramatic language, such as nation will rise against nation, or the abomination that causes desolation, or brother will betray brother to death, or the stars will fall from the sky. I mean, like, right, crazy imagery, crazy language, very dramatic. But here's the thing. The main point that Jesus wants his disciples, the main point that Jesus wants Mark's readers, the main point that he wants me and you to take away from this is that we need to have an eternal perspective on life. That we need to, to have a the, 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 the view through which we, we, we uh, process and interpret and articulate our experience in God's originally good but now broken creation is one that should keep the end times 
the end of all things in mind. All right? Now, with that in mind, and especially after I read that quote about apocalyptic literature, you might be tempted to go ahead and tune out. All right? And, and, and I don't blame you. But if you're a Christian, let me just give you a couple reasons why you shouldn't. And also, if you're not a Christian or if you're on the fringe of the faith, I also want to give you a couple reasons of why you should as well. Um, if you're a Christian, that means you are, call yourself a follower, follower of Jesus Christ. And what we're about to read, what we're about to engage with, is the longest uh, speech that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Mark. And that is a big deal, because the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of all four Gospels. And so if Mark is going to spill this much ink, if he's going to waste this much parchment on this speech, then Mark believes that this is maybe one of the most important things that he's going to write in his gospel. All right? So this really matters. Secondly, if you're a Christian, think about this. Like, this is, this is the last time Jesus teaches his disciples. He has dialogue with them, but this is the last time he teaches his disciples before he's crucified. This is his, like, kind of parting shot for them. So just think about that. I mean, that's how important this is, right? So don't check out yet. If you're not a Christian or you kind of consider yourself more on the fringe of the faith, like one thing I would encourage you, I think this is actually one of the most like compelling parts about having the Christian faith and embodying the Christian faith is that we live in light of the end. Uh, in light of the end. I think it's one of the most hopeful things about, about our Christian faith. So um, I encourage you to, to really tune in. So in just a minute, we're going to read through Jesus' response. Um, but like I said, it, it is going to use some weird language. It is going to be kind of dramatic. And so what I want to do before we, we read the whole thing, we're going to read the whole thing, um, is I want to summarize it for you. Just kind of go ahead and give you kind of a picture-by-picture picture account of what Jesus is going to say so that when, you, when we read it together that you can really focus on the meaning behind what he's saying. Does that make sense? So um, the disciples have come up to Jesus, right? He said, by the way, the temple's going to be destroyed. And they said, when are these things going to happen? And what will be the signs that they're about to be fulfilled? And so Jesus responds, and he's going to say, he's going to start off by giving them three warnings about what is not a sign of the temple's destruction. He's like, you're going to think these things are signs. They're not signs of the temple's destruction. Um, in verses 5 and 6, he's going to say, false messiahs are going to come, and they're going to peddle you a false hope that they can save the temple. That's not a sign that the temple's going to be destroyed. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus is going to say, suffering is going to take place, both man-made suffering, a.k.a. wars, and, and natural disasters such as earthquakes. Suffering is going to take place yet again. That is not a sign that the temple is going to be destroyed. And then 9 through 13, he's going to say, by the way, you're going to be persecuted because of me, because you're going to witness to the gospel of the kingdom of God. Yet again, that's not a sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. Actually, all these things are just what life looks like east of Eden. All these things, persecution because of Jesus, suffering, and false messiahs peddling false hopes about false gods. All those things are what life looks like in a fallen world. All right? And those three things are going to matter a lot. We're going to come back to those things at the end. But none of these are signs about the temple being destroyed. But he's going to say in verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation. And throughout all of today, I've done really good during the lesson. Throughout all of today, I've said the abomination that causes desolation. So I've done a really good job, so you should applaud me. No applause? Thank you. The um, standing where it does not belong. All right? When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, that's when you know the temple's going to be destroyed. And when that happens, you should get out. You need to flee Jerusalem. 
All right, the abomination that causes desolation is a really important phrase. Just let me, let me give you a little history here. It's this really crazy phrase um, that comes from Daniel chapter 9. All right, so Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament. And uh, raise your hand, have you heard of like the Maccabees, like first and second Maccabees? Um, it's in the Apocrypha, which is like the, the intertestament period. A lot, a lot of those, the books that come in the intertestament period between the Old and New Testament, all right? Um, if you've heard of like um, Hanukkah, this is like, this is like part of the Hanukkah story, all right? Um, and so that's what Daniel was predicting, that in 200 BC, um, a king uh, named Antiochus Epiphanes was going to wage war against Israel, was going to invade Jerusalem, and was going to sacrifice a pig on the uh, Jerusalem temple's altar. Now, what does that sound like? What does that sound like? Uh, yeah, what's going to happen in AD 70? So Jesus said, like, what's going to happen? Then? When you start seeing things like what happened... In BC 20, I mean BC 200, that's when you know you need to get out because that's the destruction of the temple I was talking about. Right? Does that make sense? All right, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, you get out. It's going to be terrible. There's going to be false messiahs then, particularly then, peddling this false hope that, hey, you know what? We're going to revolt. I'm going to save the temple. Don't join them. Don't stay and fight for the temple because here's the thing the temple has been condemned by Jesus. Its destruction vindicates him. Verse 31, he's going to say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, heaven and earth, um, uh, that is a shorthand for the temple. I know that kind of sounds weird, but uh, in the Jewish worldview, the temple is the place, right, where, where whose presence dwelled? God's, right? It's where God's space, heaven, overlapped with earth's space. And so when you see the words heaven and earth, think temple. All right, so the heaven and earth will pass away. The temple will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, by this, I will be vindicated. Because what is Jesus but the true temple? The way to, to approach God the Father, Yahweh of the Old Testament. So the temple's destruction actually vindicates Jesus. That's what he's going to say. Um, and then in verses 32 to 37, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to say, all right, I've told you all about the temple now. But realize, I'm not just telling you about the temple, I'm telling you about the end of time, as you know. He's going to place all of this in an in a, um, eternal perspective for us in verses 32 through 37. So, um, hopefully I've given you enough tools uh, that as we read this, you're going to be able to understand a little bit about what's going on. So we're going to read this whole thing. It is a long passage. But as we read this, I want you to be asking yourself this question. What changes does an eternal perspective invite us to make about how we see the world. Right? Jesus is going to, not just inviting us into an eternal perspective, he expects that to change our lives. He says if we adopt this, it'll change everything about our existence. And so as we read this, what changes does an eternal perspective invite us to make about how we see the world? All right, so, and I did not print that off, so I'm going to have to pull it up on my laptop real quick. Sorry. My bad, guys. Here we go. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name. I am he and will deceive many. All right, so this is all about the false messiahs. Picking up in verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pain. Suffering, right? That's not a sign of the temple's destruction either. 
Verse 9, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings, and you will witness to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father, his child, children uh, will rebel against their parents and have them put to death, right? Dramatic language. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, all right? So this is the idea of persecution. None of these are signs that the temple is being destroyed. However, verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong. And Mark even interjects here. If you, see, if you have a, a red-letter Bible, the next, the next little phrase, let the reader understand, should be in black, not red, because this is Mark jutting in. He said, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, because the temple's going to be destroyed, right? Let no one um, on the housetop go down or enter a house um, to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray this will not take place in winter because those days will be days of distress, unequal from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. That's crazy, right? If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would have survived. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And at that time, if anyone says to you, here comes some more false messiahs, look, here's the Messiah, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear, and they will perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard, because I have told you everything ahead of time. In other words, they're going to peddle, these false messiahs are going to peddle false hope about how they can save the temple, and they're going to try to get you to join them in their fight to save it. Don't do it. Get out. Why? Because its destruction will vindicate me. Picking up in verse um, 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be, straight, uh, will be shaken. This is, all, this is not talking about the end time yet. This is still talking about the temple's destruction. It sounds like the end of the world. Why? Because this is the end of the world as they know it. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 13. So this is this prophecy. And Jesus is saying, like, that's what this prophecy is talking about. It's going to be the end of the world as you know it, the destruction of the temple. Verse 26, and at that time, people will see the Son of Man. Now, who's the Son of Man? If you've read the Gospel of Mark, who's the Son of Man? Jesus, right? This is Jesus' favorite way to reference himself. At the time, you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will see, uh, send his angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the uh, earth uh, to the ends of the heavens. All right, so this is imagery from Daniel chapter 7. All right, and it's all about the vindication of Jesus, right? The temple, which is all about the Jewish people, has been destroyed. But Jesus is not just a Messiah for the Jewish people. He's a Messiah for all people. People from all corners of the earth will flock to him at that time. This will vindicate him. His, his mission was true, to not just be a Messiah for the Jewish people, but for the Gentile people as well. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves um, come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Verse 32, this is when we're about to enter into, all right, 
and time perspective, and he's going to say, but about that day or hour, which is a, a phrase that is refer a Jewish phrase that's referencing the day of the Lord, which is how the Jewish people kind of refer to, to, to judgment day, all right? The day of Yahweh. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, be on guard and be alert. You do not know when that time will come, right? In other words, you don't know when the end will come. You don't know when the world will end. By the way, a lot of people use Mark 13 to try to talk about, like, to predict the end time, right? And I think at this point, most of us have kind of caught up because of the internet, and we have a, a really good log of all the people who thought the world was going to end, and then it didn't end. So I don't think we get caught up in that as much now, but just like, if anyone tells you Mark 13 can predict the end of the world, you just tell them no, all right? And then point them to 32 through 37, all right? But, um, he says, be alert, be on guard. You do not know when that time is going to come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge with their assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. When I say, what I say to you, I say everyone. I say to everyone, watch. All right? In other words, right, I don't like, don't get caught up on when this is going to happen, but be faithful to the task to which I've called you. Adopt an end-time perspective and live inside of it in what it calls you to. That's what you worry about, not when it's going to happen, all right? So, with that in mind, I would love to hear your thoughts. I know that was a lot. I know that's a lot of text, but I think this is a really important passage, so I wanted us to go through it. Um, this is the best way I could think about doing it. So, um, what, what changes, uh, in light of just reading this text, does an internal perspective invite you to make about how you see the world? Ironically, this text about the end time is about being in the present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we, like, an end-time perspective is, like, one thing, like, who, who wins at the end? Jesus. Let's be on his team, all right? Like, you know, like, that, that is one thing I think we can take away from this, right? That's actually Randy Harris' summary of the book of Revelation. So, um, then. I think the biggest, like, fact that we aren't going to know the day and the hour stops us from saying, like, oh, we can do whatever we want up until this point, and, and then, then we can switch over. Yeah. We have to constantly, constantly be faithful. Yeah, like, be alert, be vigilant, right? Yeah, it's that constant, yeah, that's that's what we do. What else? Have the right perspective. Oh, sorry. You, you go, and then we'll go to Cal. Well, it, you know, it puts, it should put the things that are important to us in perspective. There's no way to count all your business. This I'll just say it in a kind of different way. I, you know, I have my hobbies that I love to do, and I can get kind of wound up and, and really engrossed in those things, but, you know, they don't matter. I mean, being about God's work, I mean, that's what he's talking about, all this stuff about watching and being in place and doing the things you can do. He's talking about 
all of the things that we're taught through the New Testament to do, serve others, sacrifice yep. yourself, be humble, through the Spirit. All those things are what we're to be about. Those are the important things that matter. Because those are going to be the things that last through the end time. Yeah. All other things will pass away. Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but the things of Jesus will not. Right? Kellen, you got your hand up? Um, I think when he warned about the people who said, you know, when the temple passes away, like all these other false prophets and basically distractions would come and would come and try to distract you and try to convince you that like they can save the world and they can save you. And I think that encourages us is I think that encourages us to live out of our weaknesses instead of the faithfulness of God because like they are wanting you to feel vulnerable in that moment yes. to get you to follow them. But in reality we should be living out of the strength that we get from God, not the vulnerability that we have in that moment. Yes. So like uh, this is gonna be one of the things I'm gonna talk about. Like the, these idea of false messiahs, like we you know, we may not have false messiahs right now, like in our day, like, you know, false teachers, false messiahs claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. We may not have that. But do we not live in a world of false messiahs? Things that peddle false hope and give glory to false gods, human institutions that do not deserve our allegiance. We'll talk about this. That's really, really good. Really, really good. Anyone else? I thought... This also has something to say about our view of heaven and, and, and how we live now in view of heaven. It's, it, it's not, I mean, I, the song just passing through sometimes comes and goes. We're not just a passing through. Yeah, there's some more going on there. Passing through. We're here to do God's work. I mean, we're right. not just marking time until heaven to then do, yeah. you know, I mean, this, An eternal this, perspective should push us deeper into the present. Uh, my dad, I was actually, my dad, one of the last sermon series he ever did was a series on heaven, and, and I was reading some of it to Ben this week, and he, he put it this way. He said, if your view of heaven is, uh, is not practical, then it's probably doctrinally unfaithful. In other words, if, if our view of heaven is, does not have some practicality to it, then we've thought of heaven wrong, all right? You want to talk to me more about that? We'll talk later, but not right now. All right, with that said, I'm, I, 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 as I reflected on this question, I came up with three things. Um, hopefully I can make them fairly short uh, and keep your attention for only a little bit of time. All right. So I think the first thing that an internal perspective invites us to see is that suffering is birth pains. An internal perspective transforms suffering into birth pains. In verse 8, he says, being, uh, in, yeah, that comes from uh, verse 8. He's like, all this is birth pains, the beginning of birth pains. Um, being pregnant is miserable. All right. Going through the birth process is miserable. Just ask Mary Beth. That was a good joke. You should have laughed. And that was like, that was oh, set up there. Wow. All right. Being pregnant is miserable. The birth process is miserable. It is extraordinarily painful. I was just in the room and like, you know, I like had it very easy. I'm not claiming it was painful for me, but it was very painful for Mary Beth. But here's the thing, right? Naomi is definitely worth it. Okay. Like if you see, saw that picture of her and, and the little baby chick in the sun hat, all right? Like, Naomi is worth it, all right? She is adorable. Um, and so here's the thing. An eternal perspective, I think, invites us to see our suffering as something out of which God can bring good. But it's not just that. The eternal perspective invites us to see suffering as something out of which God can bring new life. Do you see how incredible that is? Do you see why this I called an eternal perspective one of the most compelling parts about a Christian faith? If Jesus can say that wars and earthquakes and famines are birth pains, then there's nothing in your life, whether that be the death 
of a parent or your parents' divorce or a breakup or just kind of the general confusing loneliness of, of, of college or your failing of a class or your falling out and fight with a friend or a roommate or the addiction that you just can't seem to get rid of. If, if Jesus can call wars and earthquakes and famines birth pains, then know this too. There's nothing in your life that God cannot redeem. There's nothing in your life that God cannot bring new life out of. In other words, an eternal perspective invites us to reframe our suffering as something that is meaningful. There's probably been um, no Christian in the 21st century that has thought about suffering more um, than, than a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. Um, he, he puts it this way. He says, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, that suffering is overwhelming, right? Suffering is, is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, that suffering is real. Like, it isn't just like, you know, it, we're not Stoics. Like, we recognize that suffering is real. Contra-Karma, that suffering is unfair. But here is contra-secularism. Suffering is meaningful. There's a purpose to it. And if it's faced rightly, if it's faced with an eternal perspective that sees it as a birth pain, then it can drive us nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than we could possibly imagine. Um, I think most of you know at this point, like, I mean, most if not all, um, that my dad died when I was a sophomore in college. He died at the very end of, uh, of my fall semester, sophomore year. And, um, I mean, obviously that was extraordinary. It was ex extremely unexpected. He had had heart surgery in 2004, but, like, he, he like, kind of dropped it out of nowhere. And, um, and so, um, obviously, there was, there was a time of great suffering for me. Um, if you were to ask me what my favorite semester of my college, my, of my college career was, it's spring semester, sophomore year. In the wake of the suffering that happened, I experienced more life in that semester probably than any other phase of my life. Um, it's honestly when Mary Beth and I started to date. Um, it is when um, I really reoriented a lot of my like, values. Um, I was not super close to my family. I had not done a good job of being a brother and a son uh, to my mother. Um, and like all that changed then, or a lot of that changed then. I um, have deeper friendships now than I would have ever had if that had not happened. All because my dad died the greatest tragedy that I've experienced in this life. God has brought new life out of It's very likely that Mary Beth and I probably would not have started dating and therefore would not have gotten married and Naomi would not have been born if my dad didn't die when he did. And here's the thing. It's not just me who has this experience. A lot of the RFC staff can speak to this reality. Go talk to Elise. Go talk to Ben if you're experiencing suffering that's overwhelming. Go talk to Julie. You can talk to Brian and Dale and more. Go, go talk to them. And they can witness to this fact, too. That sufferings are birth pains of new life. The second thing um, that I, I at least took from this is that an internal perspective invites us to see persecution as the emergence of the kingdom of God. Opposition to the gospel is a part of the emergence of the kingdom of God. In the middle of talking about his, how his disciples were, were going to face persecution, 
Jesus uh, says in, in, in uh, verse 13, everyone will hate you because of me. All right? like, everyone's going to hate you because of me. But in the middle of that, Jesus says, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And what is the gospel in, the go- what is the gospel in Mark? It's in verse 1, I mean chapter 1, verse 14. We've talked about this a lot. It is, repent for the kingdom of God has drawn near. In the midst of the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of God arises. In the midst of the kingdoms of this world that bring death and destruction and decay, the kingdom of God, which is filled with hope, arises. But if you remember from Ben's lesson from very early last fall, he said, when two kingdoms occupy the same space, there's going to be a war that is waged. When there's two kingdoms occupying the same space, there's going to be a war that is waged. One of the greatest temptations I think that we face as Christians, um, as we try to live out the Christian life, is that we want to feel cozy inside of the culture that we inhabit. Now this is oversimplifying it, but I think there's two ways that this often happens. We either try to conform our lives to culture, or we try to conform culture to Christian ideals. And both of those are mistakes. Both of those are about us feeling cozy in the culture in which we live. However, an internal perspective invites us to see right the emergence of the kingdom of God amidst the kingdoms of this world, and therefore a war is going to be waged. So, right, we shouldn't conform to culture. Now, this one we know, right? Like, we know this. We should live different from the world. But the problem is the American church so often looks way too much like the world. Some preachers, when talking about uh, persecution, and particularly in this passage, uh, they'll say something like, man, you know, aren't, we, aren't we glad that we live in America, and therefore we are blessed that we're not persecuted? But Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, I think, contradict that, that line of thought. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad! Because great is your reward in heaven. We are not blessed because we are not marginalized. We are not marginalized because we do not live distinctly Christian lives. Right? We are not blessed because we are not marginalized. We are not marginalized because we are not living out the Christian ethic out in the world. We've conformed to culture rather than recognizing because of an eternal perspective that the kingdom of God arises amidst the kingdoms of this world and eventually one day will win out. But it hasn't won out yet. We're not there yet. And therefore, for persecution or marginalization or social ostracization should be a part of our lives as Christians. Our generosity, our love of enemy, our care for the poor, our advocacy, on behalf of the marginalized, the the least, last, lost, and lonely. Our refusal to get caught up in the idolatry of money and sex and power and the self and politics. All of those things should make our lives look so different from the world that we just happen to get marginalized by the world. An eternal perspective does not allow us to conform to culture, but hear this, nor does it allow us to conform culture to our ideals. I mean, think about this. How often do me and you, or how often do Christians, you hear Christians getting frustrated with culture? Culture this, or culture that. You know, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And I think it comes from this place of unmet expectation, right? We expect the world to conform to Christianity, 
but it doesn't. And at some point, that's just got to stop being a surprise for us. The world's going to be the world. That's what an eternal perspective, I think, invites us to see. As we witness to the kingdom of God arising amidst the kingdoms of this world, it ain't going to be pretty. But it will be beautiful, and it'll win in the end, right? We can't expect the world to conform to Christianity. Just a few things that Jesus said. You're going to be handed over. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be rebelled against. You're going to be killed, and you're going to be hated. All that comes in that section on persecution. And so instead of getting angry when the world is the world, an eternal perspective invites us to battle against the kingdoms of this world with the weapons of the kingdom of God, which are the fruit of the Spirit, right? He says, by the way, when you, when you have to speak, when you have to witness to the kingdom, don't worry. What will speak through you? What's going to speak through them? The Holy Spirit. We wage the war against the kingdoms of this world with the weapons of the kingdom of God, which are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, right? Right? Let's not get angry at the world, but let us wage a war against the world with the fruit of the Spirit. Which, by the way, I mean, there's nothing more countercultural than just living out the fruit of the Spirit, right? The third and final thing that I think an eternal perspective invites us into um, is that any Messiah other than Jesus is a false one. All right, we talked this with Caroline, really appropriately brought up. Um, In Mark chapter 13, verse 31, he says, Heaven and earth, the the temple is going to pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus is the only one at the end who will be vindicated. Think about all the false messiahs and all the temples, the human institutions that surround us on a day-in, day-out basis that are attempting to get our attention and are vying for your allegiance. What are some of those? What are some of the human institutions that are tempting you to give it your allegiance? I mean, I want you to answer that. What are some of them? School, right? And, and behind school is this system of, and, and this is something I've noticed, by the way, since, since 2008 and in the, in the Great Recession, this is something I've noticed. The idea of resume building, I think, is something that lives inside of your mind as a college student, right? That was not a thing before 2008, or at least I did not perceive it to be a thing. Not, not nearly at the level that it is now. Your resume will pass away, but Jesus' words will never pass away. All right, like, I know that sounds uh, kind of like cliche, but like, if, if you all got that, your lives would look radically different than they do right now. So yeah, that's a really good one. What, what, are, what are other human to, institutions that are vying for your allegiance? Politics. Politics. Which, by the way, the temple is not just a religious place, but a political space as well in that world. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole because we went down it a few weeks ago. So. I think the way that, I guess this is not a physical one, but like the way that other people see us. Yes, which is a human institution, right? It it is. I mean, that that is a human institution, right? We are nothing more or less than what, often it's what the opposite gender thinks about me, 
I'm nothing more or less, if I'm a guy, I'm nothing more or less than what girls think about me, or if I'm a girl, I'm nothing more or less than what a guy thinks about me. That is exceptionally true in your college years when you live in a narrative, another human institution, that you're supposed to come to college and meet, your, meet the person you're going to marry, and you get married, and you're going to have a good job, and then you're going to you know, settle down and have kids and have this perfect little life. And that's a human institution. That's a human construct that's going to pass away. Other people's opinions of you will pass away. Your status will pass away. But the words of Jesus will never pass away. What else is really good? Really good. One or two more. Just one or two more. I'll even say one more. One more. None? Yeah, the American dream, right? I mean, that's almost what we talked about, right? The American dream is this, this institution, this human institution. Right? You know, we're going to live, and it's going to be this perfect little white picket fence life. That's going to pass away. It's going to pass away. By the way, eventually, America might pass away. Which, by the way, I don't think is a good thing, right? I, I want you to be, I want to be really clear on that. Like, I think America, the, the, the be, this is the best way I know. America is the best Babylon I know, but she is still Babylon. Right? Every empire will fall, except for the kingdom of God, along with the dreams that that empire holds. Only the kingdom of God will stand at the end. Um, thank you all for, for engaging that. Um, let me end uh, by telling you the rest of Florence Chadwick's story. Two months after her failed attempt, she tried to swim the 26 miles between Catalina Island and the California coastline. Once again, about 15 hours in, the same thick fog settles in. But this time, she makes it. And she attributes it all to the fact that she kept a mental image of the shoreline in mind while she swam. If we adopt eternal perspective, it can change everything about your existence. It can fill our lives with hope and joy and truth. It can help us align our lives with Christ's vision for the world. It can protect us even from ourselves. It can reframe even our greatest hardships. And so as we split up into groups tonight, and what I want us to do is I want us to ask these questions. Uh, yeah, I, we, I've taken a lot of time to talk to you all tonight. Um, I would love for you to answer all three, but don't worry about that. Just tonight, I want you to pick one of these questions, and I want you to, 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 to answer it in your group and then pray over one another. Let me, let me just read them real quick. What suffering in your life, past or present, can you see as birth pains? And how would that change how you approach it? Secondly, do you try to conform to culture or try to conform culture to Christianity? How would adopting an eternal perspective to change your approach? Third, what human institution have you wrongly given your allegiance and how would adopting an eternal perspective change your approach to it?